0: Hello and welcome, everyone. This is Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers. And I'm super excited to welcome you to this edition of the Little Brown School podcast, particularly as we are welcoming um, a favorite new guest of all times, Emily Lloyd-Jones, author of Elusive. Hi, Emily. Hi. Emily, you are one of my new favorites, partly because you've come from my homeland of Oregon. I am from Portland, and have many deep roots there, including my driver's license still after all these years. What part of Oregon are you from?
1: I'm originally from Salem, which is about an hour south of Portland. So I know the area well.
0: And you love it still, yes. I still love Oregonians it. As all Oregonians do. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> you are the author of Elusive, which is one of the most innovative and interesting books on our list this year. Booklist gave it a starred review earlier this summer uh, as a book that was thought-provoking, multifaceted, and a book that sidestepped categorization. Wow, say that three times fast.
1: I'm not even going to try.
0: (laughs) No, but it features a cast of characters, and uh, we did the tagline for this book, and I loved it. They are young, they are criminals, they are immune. So could you start by telling us a little bit about Elusive?
1: Elusive? I love how everyone says genre-bending, like I did it on purpose, when in reality I just said, I want to shove all these things into a book and see what happens. (laughs) It's Basically, it's just 30 minutes into the future, really. It's in 2034, after a plague hit the world, and a vaccine was created to fix it. However, while it fixed the population, it also kind of screwed up a few of them. By giving them superpowers. Very small percentage ended up with one of seven superpowers. And what followed was basically chaos. And it's set after a almost new world war when new global boundaries were drawn. And the government is now really focused on finding people who have superpowers to work for them. And the only way to sidestep working as a government agent is to basically sidestep the entire government by being a criminal. Which my main character is.
0: I kind of love that. So you've already brought up one of the key words about this book. Elusive uh, has a lot of, for lack of a better term, boundary issues. Uh, There are medical boundaries, legal boundaries, national boundaries. Uh, What got you started thinking about boundaries and teens in the first place?
1: I think it's one of the themes at the heart of Elusive, which is the question of identity. Teens are in this interesting place where they're old enough that they're not children, but they're not quite adults either. And so there's a big question of autonomy for teens, because they're just beginning to make their own choices in life, but legally they're still under their parents' control. The good old teenage rebelling usually consists of pushing parental boundaries and figuring out their own lives. I think that's part of what draws me to young adult literature so much. It's because that's when people are being to say, this is who I am. It's when people are pushing back against people's assumptions about their identities, rather than who they actually are. I I love walking that line in Elusive with the main character, Sierra, who is finally striking out on her own. She spent many years being taught by her mentor, but she's ready to step up her game. Specifically, she wants to rob a bank, you know, like teenagers do. As you
0: do on a Friday afternoon. Exactly.
1: And so she recruits her partner in crime, Devin, who is similarly rebelling against the expectations of his family. And because this is a book, and because books depend on conflict, of course something goes wrong during the bank heist, and Sierra and Devon end up being in the debt of a dangerous mobster, and that's where the book begins. Basically, pushing boundaries and finding out they bit off more than they can really chew.
0: I think the publication timing for this book was oddly, I don't know if we should say inspired, or cursed, I don't know, because of the Ebola outbreak in Africa right now, and in general, the anxiety about, um, about disease. I think I saw a major uh, YA author recently who's probably named John Green, <laughs> or something like that, uh, had meningitis recently. So the metaphor of disease and boundaries is really interesting to me as well. What gave you the thought for having, uh, for having that?
1: Yes. Um, I was trying to think of what would push humanity to the brink and something outside of human conflict. And the most obvious answer is, of course, disease, which is one of the main fears of how everything's going to come crashing down. And so I was like, how am I going to push us this far? Hmm, Vaccine gone wrong, which, of course, you know, is what starts the whole world building with the superpowers, I actually ended up picking meningitis because I was trying to think of a disease that would specifically apply to the brain because a lot of these superpowers are mental and I didn't want the superpowers to be things like shooting lasers out of your eyes or, you know, flying around. (laughs) I like those superpowers, but I very much wanted this to be, as weird as it sounds, a realistic superhero novel. And so I wanted superpowers that I actually based off of stage magic, things like levitation and escapism and mentalism, all of that. And so I I tried to basically ground it in reality that way. So that's how I stumbled upon meningitis was what is a really specific brain condition.
0: I super love that answer because it adds extra depth to the novel and adds something to how we think about it because along with the boundary issues and teens forming identity, you've captured a triggering moment that really speaks to insecurity that teens are experiencing as they're trying to form their identity. And I like the idea that the powers are mental because so much of how teens are forming identity is constantly thinking about themselves as they relate to other people. So I think that's a really great thing. (laughs) Okay, so I just finished reading the book again, and it gave me kind of an earworm. I I am a little susceptible to earworms. I have a lot of different uh, pop culture things uh, from my earlier life as a teenager, which was a certain number of years ago. We won't go into that how many. But this earworm was losing my religion by R.E.M. And now I have it again. Thank you very much. Uh, Probably because the story made me think, uh, elusive, the story made me think a lot about competing loyalties. Loyalty to self, loyalty to friends, loyalty to old friends versus new friends, loyalty to an idea. But it also made me think of, you know, like songs and Stories I had heard in the background that helped me appreciate Elusive more, were there particular stories or pop culture motifs or even an earworm (laughs) that were with you as you were writing the novel?
1: Of course, I had in the back of my mind all of the recent Marvel movies that have come out and been extremely popular. I actually did have a few on in the background as I was first drafting it. Like, I'm a big Thor fan, I will admit it. (laughs) Uh, yeah. You can't really
0: go wrong with Thor.
1: You really, you really can't. Go it's got something for everyone. <laughs> uh, as for earworms, um, I have a confession to make. I am a bit of a music freak. Nearly all of my computer storage is dedicated to my music collection. And part of my writing process is to create character playlists, which I typically do for all of the major characters. And in Elusive Case, that's like seven or eight. So, of course, I'll spend days perfecting these, which totally counts as writing, right?
0: (laughs) Well, it counts as developing the voice of a character, because I imagine that particular playlist helped you get that character's perspective more firmly fixed in your mind.
1: Oh, yes. I have come back to those playlists again and again. And the two main songs I listened to while writing this were... Burn Away by The Birthday Massacre, because I consider that to be Sierra's own personal theme song.
0: Okay, you, ca- you all can't see this, but I'm making the jazz hands flappy excitement <laughs> sign.
1: <laughs> and the second one would have to be Volatile Times by IMX, which is the villain's own personal theme song.
0: I do not know that song, but perhaps we will have to get a hold of that and take a look I would
1: highly recommend it. Yeah, music freak. <laughs>
0: Well, well, speaking of that, I mean, you had these two additional songs. What were some of Sierra's um, other songs on her playlist?
1: Oh, I will need to dig that out. You don't
0: need to dig that out. If they don't pop off your top of your head, that's fine. But was there a particular genre that you you had in mind with
1: Sierra? She had a lot of pop music, to be honest. She had a lot of, like, offbeat, electric-sounding pop music. And The Birthday Massacre was definitely an inspiration. I really love them. They've got such a lush, dark sound, which fit. Um, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say there was some, I'm not sure if you pronounce it, tattoo or T-A-T-U. The one Russian girl duo band, Mm -hmm. Fly on the Wall, that is definitely one of the songs that was one of the ones I listened to the most because it was just so fitting.
0: Now we are learning more about your Aunt Vicklets because, again, I am making the jazz hands weird flappy (laughs) thing of excitement. Okay, the next time I'm on the West Coast, you and I have to hang out, and we have to, like, drive around in a car and listen to music and talk about heist movies and Thor. Is that I am totally
1: down with this plan.
0: Absolutely. Um, so going back to loyalties a little bit, how did you explore, how did you think about uh, working out the theme of loyalties in this book?
1: It was really interesting because it kind of goes back to the identity issue. It's what are your values? who are you going to be most loyal to, to yourself, your values, your desperation to stay alive, which in the main character's case is definitely her biggest loyalty is to her own survival, which is what drove her to be a criminal. But part of her journey through the book, I think, is learning to be more loyal to the people around her. And she even admits it. We're I'm doing edits on book two right now, which I won't say anything more than I'm very, very excited about. And she even admits it that she usually runs away from danger. But book one is definitely her realizing that that's not always the best thing. That she does have friends and a surrogate family that she wants to protect.
0: Including a dog.
1: Yes, including the dog. (laughs) Tulip, I do love him.
0: Does Tulip have a playlist?
1: Tulip actually does not have a playlist. He probably should, but... I think we need to have a Tulip playlist at some point.
0: I think we do. I love a good heist story. I am a sucker for a heist story. And clearly, you also enjoy a good heist story, as elusive is in addition to every other thing that it is. It is a well put together caper. What do you think the attractiveness of the heist genre is?
1: I think the attraction for heist stories is a combination of things. There's the forbidden allure of doing illegal things. Like, I'm I mean, I have never actually stolen anything. I am possibly the wimpiest wimp you will ever meet. And people who read my books are like, really? You've never even, like, you know, broken the speed limit a lot or anything? And I'm just like, no. <laughs> so I think there is a little bit of wish fulfillment there, which is, you know, doing what you want when you want to do it. Also, heist stories usually consist of ensemble casts. So no matter who the main character is, you can usually find someone to root for. And also, I admit I have a geeky love of montages, which heist stories usually (laughs) consist of. At least, you know, preparation montages, pulling off the heist. But I think the main thing is that people love magic tricks. And heist stories, when they're done well, are basically the equivalent of a magic trick because the reader or the viewer isn't given all the facts. The author has to say, look over here, look over here, don't see what I'm doing on this side of the page. And it's pulling the wool over the reader's eyes until that one great reveal when the reader goes, oh, that's what they're doing. And I feel like a lot of people live for that reveal.
0: You have added to my appreciation of this because I have never thought of a heist as a magic trick before. I don't know why. But now it seems so obvious. Okay, I learned something. I like to learn something new every day. Uh, Emily, we are so happy that we have Elusive on our list, and we're excited that you took the time out to be with us today on our podcast. Thank you so much for talking to us today.
1: Thanks now, for be- having me. It's been a lot of fun. Before we
0: go, I know you don't want to talk a lot about book two, <laughs> but do you have a title for book two?
1: We do have a title for book two. It is called Deceptive, and it definitely continues the theme of loyalties because I think we finally just settled on a tagline, which is time to choose a side.
0: Ooh. Okay, friends. I want to tell you that this has been the Little Brown School podcast with me, Victoria Stapleton, director of school and library marketing, and Emily Lloyd-Jones, author of Elusive.
1: Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Elusive is on your
0: shelves at the libraries and bookstores now. Please, will you get it? You won't be sorry. Bye now.